London had no lord. When you study the history of the 10th century, you see that from the death of Ethelred, Lord of Mercia, no man or woman was elevated to the position of overlord of London. It was no longer Mercian, but now part of a new nation, and it belonged to the holder of the title Angelorum Rex. Whomever was the king of the English would be the only lord of London. But the kings were busy, you know, waging wars and establishing a nation, and London was just a market town with rather impressive walls. And so, while no noble lord oversaw its citizens in their day-to-day -day lives, they ended up having to organise themselves, mostly. Back in Chapter 17, we met the ferocious Peace Guild, the brutal vigilante group, who would hunt down and hang any man, woman, boy or girl who dared to steal from the town, extracting a financial penalty, followed by the capital one, upon all those who had the audacity to take from them. This huge body of citizens combined their willingness to engage in pitched battles with monthly meetings over a shared meal, where they would discuss the affairs of the town and governance of it. London ran itself, mostly. This fierce community, then, who had been bloodied in battle against the Vikings, both close at home and far to the north, had only one named lord designated to them, the Bishops of London. And their loyalty to their bishops in these days was actually quite fierce. This was compounded during the tenure of Bishop Theodred of London, a Germanic bishop who had been a crucial ally of the distant king, Athelstan. The king's glory reflected upon Theodred, and Theodred's glory reflected upon the town. London became the kind of place where they defined civic virtue alongside faith in God. But what would happen if there came along a bishop who was as ferocious and as fierce as London was? Someone who was as intolerant and as demanding as them as the year 960 dawned. The town and Britain was about to find out. Hi. My name is Saul, and this is one of the most overlooked parts in the history of this century. This is chapter 21 of the story of London. Meeting God's people. awkward gap when you tell the history of the 10th century. Most narratives of this era will talk about the death of King Athelstan and then skip a few decades and we're on to the reign of King Aethelred the Unready. This intervening period and its kings don't usually get much attention, but they should, because while their narrative is a bit complicated and doesn't fit neatly into the story, they actually represent a crucial junction in the story of Britain. So which kings are we talking about here? Well, when Aethelstan died, his younger brother Edmund took the throne in the year 940. He only ruled for six years before he was unfortunately murdered in a brawl. This meant he was replaced by his brother, King Eadred. Edmund had sons, but they were way too young to take the throne. So despite being sickly and crippled with serious illness, what we think was Crohn's disease, 
Eadred was king from 947 and ruled until 955. After just seven years in power, however, he died, and his nephew, Edmund's oldest boy, Edwig, was elevated to the position of king, aged only 14. Edwig the Fair may have been dashingly handsome, but he was hated by many, and he only ruled for four years himself, before he also dies suddenly, and his baby brother Edgar becomes king in 959. Now there is much to say about these four kings. They had lives and passions, they made choices, and their actions changed the nature of the land, but since this is a podcast about London, there's only just certain things you need to know and to keep in mind. Edmund was shaping up to be as ferocious and as cunning as his brother. He was a king who was in months of his coming to power, lost all the lands north of Watling Street to his older brother's great nemesis, the Irish Viking, Olaf Guffrison. He responded to this by unleashing a brilliant and ferocious campaign, rebuilding the fjord, biding his time, and taking the north back like a grand master at a chessboard. Eventually, like his older brother, Edmund ruled the whole nation, having devastated his foes and been so powerful that he'd given the kingdom of Strathclyde to the king of Scotland as a trinket to secure an alliance. And then, at a gathering, he supposedly gets into a fight with an exiled criminal who had sneaked back into the country, and this guy stabbed him. And that was the end of Edmund. Younger brother Eadred was in charge for just a year when he faced the impact of the sudden explosion of the arrival of a former king of Norway, Eric Brotherkiller, also known as Bloodaxe. Eric had been driven from his throne by his surviving brother Hakon, the young Norwegian prince who had grown up in the court of Æthelstan, and rather than go back to take his lands across the sea, Eric decided he would very much like the throne of Jorvik. Yet, Eadred had shown his own cunning and skill and ferocity, expertly handling a five-year period of utter chaos to re-solidify control over the north. Alas, his illness got the better of him. When he died, having been reduced to a liquid diet and wasting away, a new king was elevated and something profound happened at that moment. His nephew, Edwig the Fair has one claim to fame none of his illustrious forebears could claim. He was the first king of this new nation of England to be elevated who did not face instant rebellion or war in any part of his realm. Even in fractious Northumbria and Jorvik or over in East Anglia, Edwig becoming king caused no instability. This being said, he was also known as an indulgent and somewhat petulant teenager. He was only 16 when he took the throne, after all. He is salaciously accused that on the night of his coronation, he was found sleeping with a young noblewoman and her mother. And while perhaps untrue, it reflects the fact that he was disliked, opposed and faced internal court-based political campaigns against him from day one. In the end, he was forced to grant all his lands north of the River Thames, including London, to his baby brother Edgar, before his sudden death a couple of years later, and Edgar took the throne. There are volumes here we are missing as we wish to focus on London, so we will cut these stories out happily. 
But we must refocus our attention to London with the elevation of King Edgar to the position of King of England. He was merely a teenager, but his rise became crucial in the story of London. The reason why was in 959. The new King Edgar arranged a reward for the man who had been one of his most important supporters and influences on his life, a man called Dunstan. And Dunstan wasn't just anyone. He was one of the most controversial and charismatic monks in Britain. For years, he'd been this towering figure within church culture, a fierce and compromising man who believed that English church life had been corrupted by its interactions with the nobility to the point where it needed wholesale reform, brutal reform. This reform of the church focused on the monasteries of England. You see, up to this point, your local Anglo-Saxon monastery was basically a dumping ground for noble spare children. And because many who went to monastic houses were fabulously rich, the culture of the monasteries matched the culture of these people. Monks, therefore, did not have to live like, well, monks. They could own their own property outside the monastery. They could indulge in lavish meals. They could drink as much alcohol as they liked. They could invite members of the opposite sex to come visit them, or even stay for a while. They could be involved in litigation and legal actions. They were basically extensions of the Saxon nobility, only they got to live in monasteries and convents. And it had been like this for centuries. And then along comes Dunstan. And Dunstan hates this. Monasteries to Dunstan should be houses of God. Monks to him should behave like, you know, monks. They should eat frugally, not own property, not convert in drunken sex parties, not be part of the secular status quo. He wanted them to be cut off from the outside world altogether. Dunstan wanted to build walls around monasteries. This was Dunstan's big passionate crusade, and he had been banging on about it for years. Obviously, this made Dunstan unpopular with the status quo. I mean, the average resident of a monastery did not want to suddenly find themselves living somewhere that had gone from easygoing to brutal and puritanical. The nobility saw that if the church wasn't a place they could dump their spare sons and daughters for their own benefit, they would lose out on money, land, influence, the kind of stuff they've been taking from church land for centuries. No, no, this Dunstan fellow had to be stopped. People did try to kill Dunstan, but they had failed. But he had been exiled from England twice, and the second time was by none other than King Edward the Fair. Dunstan's life had been a lonely battle, but it had not been without some victories. He had, in previous years, been made the abbot of the monastery of Glastonbury, and as abbot, he had brought in these changes there, at least. And this is where he planted seeds that grew to become important to him in later life. See, one of the monks who had seen the light under Dunstan was a man called Aethelwald. Brother Aethelwald had become a zealot for Dunstan's cause, so much so, before too long, he also was facing exile. But he'd been saved at the last minute by King Edmund, and he'd been appointed the personal tutor of the young Aetheling, Edgar. 
And that meant the new King Edgar had grown up where his main tutor was a stalwart champion of the Benedictine reform movement. And his tutor's hero was Abbot Dunstan. And Abbot Dunstan had been willing to stand up to Edgar's rather annoying older brother, Edwig, which had caused his second exile. To Edgar, then, Dunstan was a bit of a hero. His campaign to reform the monasteries were now King Edgar's campaigns. His reforms were the reforms Edgar himself wanted. And so he invited Dunstan back to England and immediately rewarded him with not one, but two bishoprics in England, including the title of Bishop of London. Dunstan was now given access to the people of London without filter. And for their part, London loved Dunstan. He was to them a perfect Bishop of London. He was strict, tough, uncompromising and willing to cause an argument. This is a town whose only civic authority is the dangerously violent Peace Guild. Dunstan is right up their street. After all, he could issue a clarion call to reform all the English monasteries, but that didn't impact too much upon London. There was at the time only one monastic community near the town, the Abbey of Thorny Island, the Benedictine monastery that had been established by King Offa, as described way back in Chapter 6. That would be the only place that would have to change. London gets to join in a campaign to tell folks what to do without having to do it themselves. How perfect! <sighs> London could just carry on, get the local abbey to shape up and support Dunstan, their bishop, in reforming everywhere else. And Dunstan did reform that abbey on Thorny Island. He reformed it and he expanded it. And that expansion is very important. It is during the reign of Dunstan that a massive land grant is made to the abbey by the king himself. This region was, after all, his. Fundamentally, they'd just been given a huge slab of land to the immediate west of London. And you can only boggle at how much owning this land today would be worth. But as interesting as that is... It is matched by the detailed description of the land grant in the charter itself, because this provides us with a fascinating description of what the land looked like in the 10th century. It describes the border to this new monastery land as running along the, quote, boundary stream, unquote, meaning the Tyburn River itself, until you come across a tree stump next to a large swampy fen area. Near there was a ditch, which you followed until you reached somewhere called Cowford, where the by now quite small river Tyburn met Aikman Street, the road that led you to Bath, today's A4 towards Heathrow. The Cowford itself was close by to where today sits, you know, Buckingham Palace and Green Park Tube Station. After this, you continued to follow the Tyburn until it came to what is described as, quote, a wide army street, unquote, which tells you what the principal purposes of main roads were in those days. In this case, by the way, it's referring to Watling Street, the ancient Roman road, and the section this grant is specifically mentioning is today's Oxford Street. Now, you follow the dividing line along what is today's Oxford Street, and you finally come to a place called Hula Burner, or the stream in the hollow, Holoburner is the origin of the name High Holborn, where eventually you would meet an old wooden church 
dedicated to St. Andrew, which may indeed be today St. Andrew's Holborn. By now the boundary would reached across to the London Fen, a large boggy area that ran either side of the River Fleet down towards the Thames, roughly following the path of today's Farringdon Street, which to this day dips down compared to the higher land in Ludgate Hill and on Fleet Street. Bogs and fens, ditches and tree stumps, rivers and cow fords. This marshy territory feels little changed from the Neolithic lands we described all the way back in chapter 1. But this is the land granted now to the Monastery of St. Peter on Thorny Island, now to be run via the strict rules insisted upon by Dunstan. As Bishop of London, by the way, he was also granted lands to the northeast of the walls, the ancient parish and manor of Stepney. This manor covered the entire area stretching from the eastern edge of the walls of London up to the River Lee and from Stamford Hill down to the River Thames itself. Basically, Dunstan owned what is today's Tower Hamlets and parts of Hackney. It said Dunstan rebuilt a church there, which was later named after him. The main church of London, the largest building in the town by far, and arguably the only stone building of any note in the town at all, was of course St Paul's. Here, Bishop Dunstan would have had his main base of operations in the town, and one can see the level of religiosity in London by the business this church did. And because as much as St Paul's was a place of spiritual devotion, it was also a profitable place. Churches at the time did good business from saints, and St. Paul's was quickly becoming a place of saint veneration. As I said last chapter, it had a shrine inside the church dedicated to the highly profitable St. Swithin, but it also had three local saints who were especially important to the Saxon town. The first was St. Sabai of Essex, a former East Saxon king of Essex who'd converted to Christianity and whose tomb was located in the cathedral. This tomb was to survive all the way until the Great Fire of London, many centuries later. It was a place of devotion and worship, and basically, Sebai was the second most popular saint in the town at the time. We should also mention Saint Meletius, who was a gout-afflicted Italian who started life as an abbot in Frankish lands before he arrived in London in the year 604 and had been consecrated the first ever Bishop of London. He remained in that post through the whole story of the residents of the East Saxon Kingdom converting to Christianity and then reverting to paganism, you know, that whole thing. And he held the post for 15 years, through exile and otherwise. Finally, in 619, Melatius had been appointed only the third ever Archbishop of Canterbury, where he supposedly diverted a fire with the strength of his faith. While he was buried in Canterbury, Melatius did have a shrine to him in St. Paul's, and those afflicted by gout were instructed to pray to him for intercession. But the most popular of the saints of St. Paul's was St. Erconwald, then the patron saint of London. Now, he'd been the Bishop of London who'd taken over after Bishop Wine, who you may remember all the way back in chapter 4 of the story, was the one who got the post by bribing the kings of Mercia. Erkenwald had held the title of Bishop of London from 675 until 693. 
and his feast day was celebrated every 30th of April. More importantly, his tomb was also located in St. Paul's, and here it had become the centre of pilgrimage for the surrounding region. Erkenwald was profitable for London. He was their saint, and he grows in importance during this era. So in trying to figure out what the people of London of this age were like, we know in secular pursuits, they were very concerned with people not stealing their property. And they were willing to defend their town with violence, happily. And we can see that in matters spiritual, two high-profile bishops of London, a big old church with a bunch of saints linked to it, and the bishop being the only London-focused nobleman of note, Londoners became a place where piety was mixed up in all they did. If you want proof for how strong their faith was, try this. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states in the entry for the year 961, quote, This year there was a very great pestilence when the great fever was in London and St. Paul's Minster was consumed with fire and in the same year was afterwards restored, unquote. So, all right, so we know some kind of epidemic hit England and the marsh-surrounded lands of London saw it be especially hit. The great fever was taking out the residents of those tightly packed wooden houses we described back in chapter 19. And then, when all of this was taking place, St. Paul's was consumed by fire. This is a terrible calamity. But we do not hear of the relics of the saints being destroyed, so obviously some folks had the wherewithal to remove them. And then St. Paul's is restored within a year. That's fast. It's one thing to say, oh, the locals were able to restore a burned-down church in a year flat. I mean, fair enough. But it's another to say, hey, during a highly infectious epidemic, the people were able to restore a church in one year flat. These are a passionate people of a passionate God possessing great, burning faith. These were God's people. And it is here also with Dunstan that I for one think that as much as Dunstan had an influence upon the town of London, London also had an influence upon him. Because Dunstan was only Bishop of London for just two short years. When King Edgar had the opportunity, he elevated him straight away and made him Archbishop of Canterbury, like St. Miletius before him. And this gave Dunstan the power to reform monastic communities everywhere. Dunstan now had the ability to influence national policy. And in doing so, he seems to have picked up on something. London, I think, taught him about the importance of fleets and ships. I mentioned last chapter how I believed Aethelstan's fleet had been either based in London or that London played a role in its shaping. One of the reasons I cannot say for sure this is a fact, as we do not have any written evidence saying so. But we can say that Aethelstan had a fleet and he used it, that it was large enough to carry the king and his army as far north as Aberdeen, a feat no later medieval king could ever manage, and had allowed him send ships to defend Alan of Brittany. It was clearly there, there's no refuting that. But there are no records as to how it be paid for. Ships and the crews to man them cost money after all. You need an infrastructure to maintain them. And nothing seems to have been in place during Aethelstan's reign. Which may explain something that happened 
when King Aethelstan died. <laughs> See, when Edmund was elevated, he didn't have access to this English fleet. Oh, apparently there was an active English fleet at sea at the time. It's, they were in the English Channel and they appeared to be raiding the coast of the Frankish Kingdom. Yes, that's right. It appears that the fleet of the English state of Aethelstan was busy doing copycat Viking raids upon their Frankish neighbours. Why would they do that? We don't know. But I have a question. How else would you pay for things? How else would you make money? Raiding means you get some valuable commodities you can steal from your victims, you know, like coins and precious items and people. Slavery was a cash industry. You capture folks to sell the folks. And while Dublin was the number one slave market in Western Europe at the time, the emergent nation of England had a very successful slave-based economy. Ugh. So am I saying that ships from London were at the time of the coronation of King Edmund busy making cash by plundering the French coast? No, no. I'm saying I would not be surprised if they did this is all, and that the idea is it's in the pocket. So with that in mind, and given Dunstan becomes Bishop of London for a couple of years, it also does not surprise me to see that when he becomes Archbishop of Canterbury, he begins to introduce some shipped-based policies nationally. It's during his reforms of the ecclesiastical authorities in England that we see the first references to a new idea, the ship soak. Now, for the record, the evidence for this tends to appear a bit later and is scattered and is not clear. Keep that in mind. But what we think it shows is the establishment, initially from the estates of abbots and bishops associated with the reform movement, of units of three hundreds obligated to supply and crew one ship each. The hundred was the taxation and military term. It referred to 100 hides, which we described back in a previous chapter. Now, it appears that mostly in the south, but in principle applying across the whole country, every five hides had to find and feed one man for the fjord and this new navy. This is the ship soak. It appears that the ship soak specifically suggested that each abbot or bishop would supply a ship to be used to defend England, and the three hundreds paid for the crew to man it. Technically, these men would serve either by land or by sea, as the needs of the moment required them, but they were to be led by the same officer in each case. It started with the reformist ecclesiastical communities, those who believed in Dunstan's reforms, and almost certainly that would have included London and the Abbey of Thorny Island. As we know, Dunstan appointed his successor to London personally, a man called Ilfstan. But this obligation would match the pattern we see appearing later. In time, and if not in Edgar's reign and soon after, that obligation to supply and man warships was extended to secular landlords and the counties of England themselves. It was under Dunstan, after he had served his term in London, that we see the first legislation for the establishment of a fleet to defend England. How big was this fleet? We do not know. Some have estimated it was maybe no more than 30 ships. An account at the time offers the fantastical number of 3,600 ships. <laughs> which we could just dismiss out of hand, except 
except it's a multiple of 60. And if by 3,600 ships, they actually meant 3,600 men, then that would suggest a fleet of 60 ships with 60 men in each, which is actually quite a realistic target. As we will see in the reign of Edgar's successors, London was to be intimately involved in the organisation of this fleet and its gathering, and again, while there exists no evidence to say it happened now, again I stress the point that its later role entails me that these naval traditions began in this era. Now, Edgar himself obviously placed some importance in this fleet. There are reports, from later eras it must be said, that claim that this fleet would gather and cruise along the coast and up the Irish Sea. It would simply announce itself every so often, reminding the Vikings of the Norse-Gale diaspora that their enemies now had a fleet. And there is a story, perhaps apocryphal, but one never knows. Soon after he was crowned king, Edgar supposedly cruised with his fleet up the east coast of England, again suggesting somewhere like London was the organising place, up to somewhere on the north coast, maybe even as far as Scotland. Here, according to the tale, he took part in a symbolic little ritual. Edgar got into a boat, taking the steersman's position, and then some kings of Wales, uh, the king of the Isle of Man, uh, the Hebrides, Galloway and Strathclyde, they all got into the boat in the rower's position and rowed him to the other side of the river. The imagery of the helmsman of the nation is laid on pretty thick here, but just keep in mind, and we'll talk about this in a future episode, it is worth noting this tradition said the kings who were rowing him, they were all people, leaders, who were based on the Irish Sea. They were all of Norse-Gale disposition. True, untrue, it's not important. The image was everything. The branding was everything. Edgar is known to history as Edgar the Peaceable. It's pure branding. Look how peaceful my nation is. By all accounts, Edgar himself was a short guy with a bad case of short guy complex. He would personally pick fights with taller men, take insults where none were intended, and had a need to brag to hide his insecurities. And today, the role of the King of England will be played by Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. He was also born a second son of a king. He was the spare, and as such, he was probably destined for a life in the clergy. I mean, he was specifically tutored by Brother Æthelwald, a fanatical devotee of monastic reform. His influence of faith is seen right throughout his reign. I mean, for example, Edgar was not crowned until he was age 30, his coronation happening at the same age he could technically become a priest. And under the auspices of Dunstan, his Archbishop of Canterbury, the whole coronation ceremony was scrapped changed and reborn. It became a spiritual pageant unlike any other, including such radical moments of his wife being crowned the first ever Queen of England. Basically, Edgar was known to be fairly pious. Well, he felt pious. He didn't always act pious. I mean, this was the king when he was aged 19. Basically kidnapped a nun, had a daughter by her before she returned to the convent. Still, two of his three children were to become saints, but that's a whole separate tale to get into. Ultimately, for me, King Edgar was a pragmatist. And he did something in his reign that's much overlooked, but reveals this pragmatic side of his personality like nothing else. 
He realised that the best way to rule the North was with a light touch. He decreed that while he, as king alone, should create the common law of the land, which he was able to push through via his ecclesiastical reforms, the regions with large Anglo-Norse populations, such as East Anglia, the five boroughs of Northern Mercia, and the former kingdoms of Jorvik and Bernicia, they should be allowed to have their own laws and traditions to supplement his, their own unique way of doing things. He won't stop them. See, this was a smart thing. In enshrining these privileges, it granted the powers that be in these regions a reason to support the king. Very pragmatic, very smart. In time, and I mean soon, like within a single generation, this grant was to lead to this region to be nicknamed the Dane Law. And then, suddenly, Edgar died in the year 975. And this instantly plunged England into a crisis. He had three children, a daughter called Edith, a child of his escapade with a nun. He had a son from his first union or his first wife uh, called Edward, who was about 12 or 13 at the time. And now he had young Ethelred, who was only about two or three and was the son of his queen. It would appear a simple matter to decide who should be king, but it wasn't. At the time, and subsequently, there were persistent rumours that Etheling Edward was, to put bluntly, displaying tendencies of scary and questionable behaviour. He was given to terrible rages, they said, and even as a child, acts of wanton and callous violence and cruelty. He was feared, genuinely feared, by several who knew him, even as an infant. For these people... He was utterly unsuitable to be king. They wanted his young brother to take the throne. And others completely dismissed this as nonsense and opposed this movement. And so great was the concern over Edward, so passionate did this issue become, that violence seemed to break out in England as small armies of differing nobles marched out against one another. It is said in 975 a comet raced across the sky, a traditional potent of calamity and terror. The residents of London gazed up at the comet above them and feared what it would bring. It seems they would have good reason to fear. The harvest that year failed, and this led to the Great Famine of 976. England, and we must imagine, suffered from a great hunger. The records we have of that year tell not only of a lack of food, but also great unrest across the nation. The impression we get is of a land wrecked by factionalism and strife. The Edward v. Ethelred conflict became a flag of convenience to allow those who opposed or supported the Benedictine reform movement to move against each other. We do not think there were any large-scale battles, but there were deaths. And one London would have witnessed this growing tension, and the actions of the powerful lords of the land began to become far more important than the actions of the king. And by all accounts, the rather furious teenager Edward didn't much care for being king. He barely issued charters, barely did much of anything except try and punish those he felt were opposing him. And then, suddenly, in 978, Edward was killed in murky and dubious circumstances and his body dumped in an unmarked grave. In time, he would be known as Edward the Martyr. 
but not now, not in the immediate aftermath. In the immediate aftermath of his death, there was a kind of sigh of relief and also apprehension. The king was dead. His brother was just a child. A regency was going to have to be established. Things were bad, but not that bad, right? To the devout folks of London, God's people, the Almighty had seen them through some extraordinary changes lately. Surely he would bless them in their future. Alas, the Almighty was seemingly busy elsewhere, it appears, because things were about to get much, much worse. And that's it for today's chapter. As always, if you look in the description of this episode, you'll find a link to the rough script that I'm reading from right now, freely shared for anyone who wants to read along as well as listen along, and it's got pictures and maps and things I found along the way in researching it. In the next few weeks or so, I'm going to start creating bonus content for those who wish to become members and supporters of this channel, and I'll do a few more episodes before I start talking about that. But thank you to all those who have supported this podcast so far. Your generosity makes this all possible. And that's it for this week. And I'll be back for chapter 22 of the story of London, the Saxon Omni-Crisis. See ya.